Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Matza, and for this special edition of Jerusalem Unplugged, I will not have a guest but I will tell you a story based on work, scholarly work, research done in the past few years, which also culminated with a publication of an article, particularly focusing on a neglected and, in fact, I would say forgotten story of Jamal Pasha, the Ottoman governor of Syria and Palestine during World War I, who, according to the documents, attempted to sell the Western Wall to the Zionist organization in 1916. This is a very interesting event, as despite the fact it didn't happen in, in the sense that uh, obviously the offer fell through and eventually the war remained in the hands of the uh, Ottoman administration and it was not sold to the Zionists, but it, it may suggest what in history is called counterfactual history, what if. What if the wall had been sold? But more importantly, it speaks about the plans that were already drawn in 1916 to transform the Maghrebi quarter into a plaza. And eventually, as we know, in 1967, after the Israeli conquest of the old city in East Jerusalem, that neighborhood within the old city was demolished and a new plaza was built which is still obviously visible nowadays right in front of the Western Wall. But let's go to the story. So on November 17, 1915, Artur Rupin, which was the uh, head of the Zionist office in Jaffa, wrote to Richard Lichtheim, the representative of the Zionist executive in Istanbul, saying that according to some correspondence that they received, Jamal Pasha, the military governor of Syria, had expressed interest in setting the area in front of the Western Wall 
in order to dismantle the nearly 30 houses owned by Moroccans and create a space, in his own words, reserved for the prayers of the Jewish people, while the rest could be turned into a public garden. Now, since the mid-19th century, wealthy European Jews had been trying to purchase the same area from the Ottomans without success. The situation did not change for the better, even under British rule. While the British Declaration of Support for the Zionist vision, obviously with the Balfour Declaration, and the establishment of mandatory uh, Palestine under the British, somehow pushed Zionist leader to expect or at least to be able to turn the area of a whaling hall into an open space. Eventually, that uh, didn't uh, unfold, and the British turned down Zionist offers. Obviously, the British were very much wary of a potential for Arab-Jewish conflict that such a transaction might have provoked. Eventually, the violent disturbances of 1929 uh, deferred any possibility of acquiring the Western Wall or converting the Maghreb quarter into a plaza. Well, historical events continue to postpone the realization of these hopes, obviously for the Zionists, particularly the war of 1948 dealt a serious setback because obviously the city came into Jordanian hands and now the Zionists were no longer in control of the old city. Eventually, the five-day war of 1967 abruptly reversed this setback and gave the Jews, or better say now the Israeli, another chance. In fact, within a less... Uh, then a week after the conquest of East Jerusalem and the old city, Israeli bulldozer had raised to the ground the Maghreb quarter, realizing a century-old dream. But by then, it seems the official historical narrative of Israel had forgotten, or I would say possibly ignore, the offer made by Jamal Pasha in 1915. Now, a recent article by Stephen Zipperstein in the Times of Israel revealed that, according to documents found in the British archives, Prince Mohammed Ali Pasha, uncle of the future King Farouk of Egypt, proposed to sell the Western Wall to the Jews during the unfolding massacres in Palestine of 1929. Now, the story is very interesting. The claim made that this was unprecedented, however, it's not correct. Because as we're going to see, and we're going to listen through this podcast, that offer was originally made in 1916 by Jamal Pasha. Quite interestingly, in an article published by uh, Shoshana Levy in 1972 in Aretz, she wrote, Jamal Pasha sold the Western Wall to Albert Antebi. That was the title of the article. Essentially, she discussed the details of a relevant correspondence, the same one that I found, but only a few people, three maybe four people actually have seen, but never talked about, other than myself, and obviously this article. But the article, re remarkably, did not really receive any attention. Uh, no historian either examined the material or questioned whether the uh, journalist found the material itself. Well, perhaps there was no appetite for discussing the war and the area, given that this article was effectively published just five years after Israeli occupation of East Jerusalem and the demolition of the Maghreb quarter. So why, why discussing that, right? Now, whatever the case, the affair has remained essentially unknown to the Israeli public and to, to the larger audience. But I say Israeli public because I believe that, uh, in a sense, given the fact that these documents were, were available, 
in the archives. You know, I, I wonder why Israeli historians didn't really unpack them and presented the case. And obviously we're going to talk about that later. It is nonetheless worth mentioning that a recent short article published in Hebrew by an Israeli scholar, Dotan Goren, essentially, again, looks at the same letters, but, you know, there's no analysis and no comments. It's just like a sort of a chronology uh, of the letters. So today I want to discuss the offer made by Jamal Pasha and show how it became an affair of great concern to Zionist leaders and to the Zionist cause. But in order to fully understand the correspondence between the various Zionist actors, I think it's very important to summarize briefly the value of the Western world, what does, what does represent the Western world for the Jews, but also to local Muslims in particular. Now, in our times, the Western world is considered the most sacred Jewish site, not just in Jerusalem, but really across the world. Its sacredness is now undebatable. But its value for the Zionists at the beginning of the 20th century had yet to be defined and underwent significant changes over the last century. So I will try to discuss briefly the question of the Western War, because I think this is very important in order to understand the context into which Jamal Pasha made an offer to Albert Antebi. And yes, obviously we're going to talk about Albert Antebi, who was a, an Ottoman Jew, originally from Syria, that moved into Jerusalem, sort of a cosmopolitan figure, and in essentially uh, represented the, the, the local Jews, even though we should remember that he was not a Zionist supporter. Now, eventually this uh, offer became an, a secret international affair. So, towards the end of the podcast, I really want to talk about secrecy, but more importantly, the question of failure. How did it fail? And again, how did it stay and remained a secret for such a long time. In the end, the capture of the Western Wall and the demolition of the Maghrebi Quarter in 1967 essentially produced the same outcome as Jamal Pasha's attempt to sell the wall to Albert Antebi. But I don't want to say here or suggest that Jamal's offer justified the events of 1967, not at all. The Ottoman commander knew all too well that selling the wall and opening a plaza by removing Moroccan houses would have angered the local residents, and particularly Muslims. So Jamal's offer must be understood and contextualized, remembering that throughout the war period, Jerusalem was still ruled by an Islamic empire, and obviously Jamal believed that the empire would survive the war. Though the end result would have been the same, the actual execution of a plan, when it finally came to pass, turned out to be rather different, one that was very dramatic and violent. Now, what would have been the implication if Jamal's offer had become reality? Obviously, the ifs of history acquired daunting. Nothing can be done to change the past. And that being the case, no one could argue that Jamal's Pasha's offer is now irrelevant. But I want to prove and try to argue here on the podcast that the opposite, showing that the neglect of the offer was not an accident, but more likely a deliberate choice to ignore it in order to create a different narrative that would stress the importance of redeeming the war rather than buying it. Shoshana Levy, this article I mentioned earlier, published in 1972, suggested that uh, you know, the proposal made by Jamal Pasha to Albert Antebi demonstrated the relevance of the importance of the local Sephardi Jewish community, which eventually submitted to Yashkenazi form of Zionism. But more than that, this offer and its absence 
in writings published between World War I and the late 1970s, shows the attempt to paint Jewish-Ottoman relations as inherently negative. Now, I can't really you know, tackle this argument here on a podcast simplistically. Jamal Pasha's offer reveals a more complex relationship between the Ottoman establishment, the Jews, and Zionism. And I hope just to add some substance to a debate over a very complex historical period, which obviously require more work, more information, and certainly more open-minded uh, approach to all of this, by scholars, the media pundits, and indeed public opinion. So let me talk about briefly the Western world. And, uh, you know, we had this good scholar here on the podcast, Ilal Cohen, talking about 1929, the Western world, and Nazmi Al-Jube talking about uh, the Maghreb quarter. So I invite you to listen to these post- podcasts and episodes in order to get more information about the, the Western war, the Maghreb quarter. Now, our generation universally recognized that the Akotel Maravi, the Western war in Hebrew, or Al-Makba uh, in Arabic, th- this is the word site most sacred uh, to the Jews. Following the riots of 1929, the Western war had become part of a national struggle, however, between the Zionists and the Palestinians. But prior to that event, this place was essentially a reminder of a Jewish diaspora rather than a national symbol. In fact, the official history of the Western Wall commissioned by the Israeli Ministry of Defense, quite interestingly, by a military organization rather than a cultural one, uh, suggests that as early as the 4th century, some sources would report Jews visiting the Western Wall, at least once a year. Now, Early descriptions of the wall by Jewish pilgrims and travelers, however, do not really account for its religious value. Probably they just visited. A major shift, however, occurred at the beginning of the 19th century, with the rediscovery of the Holy Land by European travelers, and with internal changes within the Jewish diaspora. Slowly the wall turned into a spiritual symbol, and as worshippers at the wall grew in number, services and prayers were designed to fit the renewed interest in the war. To many Jews around the world, though, the wall symbolized destruction, the degradation, particularly to assimilated Jews around the Western world. So the wall became a site that reminded them of the suffering of the Jews in contrast with the development of modern societies throughout the 19th century. And plenty of material sources show the expansion of the wall as a Jewish praying site and the increasing number of requests by local and foreign Jews for a better access to the area. So throughout the 19th century, the wall became for Jews the most evocative space in Jerusalem. More and more people began to pray around the world, more travelers began to visit the area. And although the wall itself was only a fragmentary remnant of the Jewish temple, it was worth remembering that the wall assumed the sacred character due to its vicinity to the Forbidden Temple Mount, and not because of its exceptional holiness per se. In other words, it's not the wall to be holy, but it's the closeness to the holiest site that makes the wall important. The wall, in other words, became a lieu de mémoire, a place for memory, a symbolic element of a memorial heritage of a Jewish community. Now, I, w- I will talk about that, about this later, uh, but it's important here that Jews nevertheless held different views over the war. And not all were eager to make the wall a symbol of Jewish rebirth and identity. The growth of the Jewish presence around the wall, however, elicited a local Muslim reaction. But 
A famous uh, local chronicler, uh, a Jew, Abraham Moses Longs, basically reported in his works, in his words, Muslims never showed intolerance towards those who worshipped the one God in whom they believed to. But the situation was going to change as Jewish leaders began attempting to purchase the wall or sections of the Maghrebi quarter. According to uh, uh, David Rossoff, uh, an historian, he found out that the first attempt possibly to acquire houses near the wall occurred in the late 1830s during the Egyptian rule of Jerusalem when Rav Shemaria Luria, a wealthy Jew, made an unsuccessful uh, request to Palestine's new rulers. According to the Israeli Antiquities Authority, the Jewish sage from India, Abdullah of Bombay, tried to purchase the wall itself in the 1850s, but again, another fruitless attempt. There were three other major reported attempts, with more sources to back up sort of the story of these attempts, uh, before World War I. In 1866, the famous British Jewish philanthropist Moses Montefiore sought permission to build a shelter to protect worshippers from the elements, and then also to acquire the wall. Now, he was able to at least place some blocks of marble that were used as benches, and eventually these disappeared. But the agreement he reached with the local Ottoman authorities was never fulfilled. In 1887, Mustafa ul a member of a prominent Jerusalemite family, and guardian of important religious properties, uh, signed an agreement in principle with Baron, uh, obviously, Edmond de Rothschild and Isim Bakar to sell part of a Madian Waqf. Madian Waqf controlled, so an endowment controlled the Maghrebi quarter. And uh, obviously, the idea was to sell some of his houses in front of a wall, which were then demolished and enlarge the area for Jews to pray. The agreement fell through. Rothschild tried, you know, made a renewed attempt to purchase a small alley in front of a wall, but again, even this one didn't uh, happen. One final attempt before the outbreak of World War I occurred between 1913 and 1914, and this was brokered by the Anglo-Palestine Bank and its local manager, David Levontine, supported also by David Yellen, who represented the Association to Maintain Historical Sites in the Land of Israel. Slowly, although not without internal disagreements, Zionist supporters began to take an interest in the Western Wall as a symbol of Jewish identity, something that could basically expand the reach of just uh, secular Zionism. The outbreak of the war stopped the negotiation, in this case, in which, to this point, saw the Jews as buyers only. Now, these attempts, while failures, serve the purpose of raising awareness of Zionism and its goals among local Arabs. However, it would be wrong to suggest that local Muslims and Christians wished to deny Jews their religious rights, particularly the right to pray at the wall. Jewish expansion in the city, in fact, was perceived not just as a challenge, but occasionally as an opportunity, since many Jews, newly arrived from Europe, often came to supply the capital, but more importantly, they invested locally and they interacted with local Palestinians, Christians and Muslims. Others didn't and that obviously created problems. Jewish interest in the war, nonetheless, directly influenced how Muslims looked at the same sites, prompting the development of a counter-narrative, celebrating the sanctity of Al-Burak, the tethering place of the Prophet Stalin, during the famous night journey to Jerusalem. So, as the war became more and more relevant for the Jews and also for Zionists, there's a reaction, also local Muslims, and then later on a large, 
change their perceptions of the same sort of area, particularly of the, of the Al-Burak. So Islamic reverence for Jerusalem is often associated with two episodes related to the Prophet uh, Muhammad, uh, the night journey, and obviously the temporary adoption of Jerusalem as a first direction of the prayer, the Qibla. During the night journey, the Prophet was transported on a sort of magic stallion named Al-Burak, and consequently the place where the stallion was tethered became a respected spot. But remember, not a sacred one. Early Islamic scholars disagreed on the story, but in time they agreed and you know, the, the, the story gained wide acceptance. But until recent times, there has been little disagreement about the location of the place where Muhammad Tether al-Burak. A small mosque, Jamil al-Burak, was erected, marking the alleged spot where the magic stallion was tethered by the Prophet, well inside the precincts of Aram al-Sharif. By the beginning of this current century, the 21st century, the location of the Burak, however, has changed, has shifted to the area where the Western world stands. But this shift was slow in coming, and Muslims did not originally consider the wall area a sacred place. Now, I'm not going into the question of sacredness, but it's important to understand this context uh, in order to understand how Jamal Pasha was able to make this offer, and how communities would have probably reacted to that. Now, as I said, uh, you know, this is very important you know, to understand how people understood these sacred places back at the beginning of the 20th century. What is important is to understand that throughout the centuries, Jerusalem religious life has undergone a number of changes, including the appearance, disappearance, growth, and decline of myths and stories. And in a religious city like Jerusalem, such things are not minor questions. And the balance achieved in time, which then was translated into an official agreement known as status quo, you know, it's crucial to the, to the city itself. Now, I also want to mention the fact, going back to the point, that, for instance, the, the famous uh, Palestinian historian nationalist, Ariel Aref, uh, you know, in his famous book, uh, The Detailed History of Jerusalem, did not include the Western Wall in Islamic holy places of Jerusalem. But even in 19, uh, later on, 1914, uh, guidebook of Yaram al-Sharif, published obviously, uh, you know, by local Muslim scholars, did not include the war as an Islamic holy place. So that tells us that obviously there's been a shift throughout time. And I also want to mention the fact that the offer made by Jamal Pasha was somewhat revolutionary, probably even radical, because selling an Islamic waqf, selling an Islamic endowment was essentially forbidden. But he knew, he knew, that given the wartime conditions, that would have been probably possible. And also the fact that Jamal Pasha chose Albert Antebi, an Ottoman subject, a well-respected communal leader, shows that Jamal Pasha was very careful on how to move this very, you know, sort of minefield. Uh, you know, Albert Antebi, I mentioned earlier, was a Syrian-born, spoke Arabic, French educated, and he was anti-Zionist. So essentially, Jamal Pasha could have said, well, I'm not selling to the Zionists, I'm selling to the Jews, and I'm selling to Albert Antebi. So a respected member of the Ottoman polity. Which also tells us that Jamal believed and trusted Antebi as an individual. And the bridge between the broader Jewish community and the Zionist movement. And obviously, you know, the Ottoman administration. Now, 
let me move to talk about uh, the question of uh, the correspondence. So, a few years back, I was with Central Zionist Archives in Jerusalem looking for some material when I bump into a folder called Z3 slash 68. And there's a bunch of letters in German uh, covering the period between November 1915 to August 1916. It's possible that other letters were exchanged, but we may presume that Arthur Rupin, who I said was a sort of a, the local head of a Zionist office in Jaffa, um, in certainly Richard Lichtman, who was sort of a responsible of a Zionist office in Istanbul, you know, wrote something more. But, you know, these are the letters that we have. And as I said earlier, you know, these two initiated a correspondence which eventually came to include more people from all around the world. And the correspondence is, begins with a clear offer and essentially says that Albert Antebi met with Jamal Pasha, who made an offer. Quote, to dismantle the 30 houses of the Moroccans while the newly gained plaza would be as long as the so-called Western Wall, about 50 meters, and in depth about 30 to 40 meters. 10 to 12 meters in front of the Western Wall could be reserved for the prayers of the Jewish people and the rest of the space could turn into a public garden. Which is not very that different from what we see nowadays. It's bigger space, but still reflects this idea of removing that Maghrebi quarter. Now, at this stage, it was not clear what legal status would have been given to the area. Obviously, it was an Islamic endowment, and Jamal Pasha was challenging that. But Jamal Pasha required 20,000 Turkish lira as final payment, with an immediate 2,000 Turkish lira payment up front to restart the removal of the houses. Rupin reported that Antebi had been in touch with the uh, Ha'ambashe, the chief rabbi, Chaim Naum in, in Istanbul, in Constantinople, and he, Nahum, had probably been in touch with the American ambassador, Harry Morgenton. We can say safely that Morgenton was aware of that because in his diary, he's mentioning the, the offer briefly. He doesn't make anything out of it, but he says that an offer was made. Now, whether the circle of those acknowledgeable or, or uh, the people involved in this affair was slowly widening, Rupin closed this letter, the first one, saying, this issue is not allowed to be flagged over to death in the newspapers, but must be guaranteed by some few rich people without big agitation. If one makes too much noise, the matter would be destroyed and it would also upset Jamal Pasha. And essentially, Rupin made it clear from the very beginning, this has to be a secret affair and possibly has to be within a small circle. However, since we need the money, we obviously need to involve some wealthy Jew because they needed the money to move forward. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. 
Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, in the second letter, which is dated December 31st, 1915, it is obvious that the matter had been discussed by members of a Zionist organization uh, committee, the Inner Actions Committee, it's called, in Copenhagen. So Lichtheim wrote to uh, some of his people asking about the legal aspects. So essentially, it became an issue, okay, if we get the war, how do we, you know, what kind of legal status the war will have? And who's going to be the head of this area, who's going to own the area. So the circle enlarged, and it came also to include, famously, Louis Brandeis. American, part of the Supreme Court of Justice, very close to President Wilson, and certainly well-connected to rich and wealthy Jews who could have provided the money. But he also included an individual like Menachem Oshiskin, who had settled in Russia and suggested also contacting non-Zionist leaders, particularly religious leaders. What is clear is that most of the Zionist leaders wanted Rupin to ne negotiate with Jamal Pasha, not Albert Antebi, and this is obviously for political reason. But it was accepted that Albert Antebi would have been the bridge sort of between the movement and Jamal Pasha. A number of letters deal with the question of money. So essentially now it becomes a financial question. Where do we find the money and how do we collect it and why do we keep the agreement secret? But in the meantime, it's quite clear that a number of Zionists, including Lichtens, began to show some opposition to this operation. Very much because they, they developed this negative attitude towards the affair in, in sort of a political terms, but uh, uh, I would say more like spiritual terms, they didn't want to purchase the war. They see that this may essentially once again bring about the tropes of the Jews purchasing, you know, the Jews connected to money, and possibly revive again anti-Semitism. So what you have here are questions thrown upon the table by some Zionist leader 
they, they essentially don't want to purchase the wool, but they rather wanted to await and see whether they can actually redeem the wool through something different, possibly through war. So there's an internal debate, and yet money is you know, collected, and eventually the money is found. And so here we are, close to, you know, fulfill the agreement. However, on July 3rd, 1916, so several months later, Dr. Jacobson, another Zionist leader, wrote a letter to Louis Brandeis. And here, for the first time, the counterpart is mentioned. In fact, in this crucial letter, the fears of the Zionists in, the, in, in relation to the Western Wall affair are fully revealed. Jacobson confirmed that Ushiskin and Chelenov, so another Zionist leader in Russia, had procured the necessary money. And the money was transferred to him. So the money was available to the World Zionist Organization. Jacobson then suggested that in any case, he believed that the operation would not be executed anytime soon. Now, it's not clear why Jacobson was so cautious, but obviously it's clear that he was aware of uh, some information that did not disclose in the letter. Jacobson, however, ordered clearly a full news embargo. No one would have discussed this about the negotiations of the money to anybody. But it's not an internal issue. It's not about the war. They finally realized that this would have caused issues, first in the Arabic press, and then would have provoked agitation, and possibly that would have harmed the Jews and the Zionists. So finally, it was revealed that secrecy was not only paramount because of the sensitivities of dealing with Jamal Pasha, who had, you know, different views about the Zionists and the certain Zionist leaders, and obviously his mood might have changed. But more importantly, because it was clearly understood the local Arabs would have certainly opposed such a deal. So Jacobson was nevertheless focusing more on actual present conditions in Palestine rather than on the future. So he reported Brandeis, to Brandeis that though Jamal Pasha was still unfriendly towards Zionism, the relationship with Rupin was improving. So, you know, the deal could have been finalized. But Jacobson is waiting, he's taking, he's buying time essentially, because he's concerned. He's concerned that this might turn, you know, the whole affair into a major incident. And effectively compromise Zionist presence in the region itself. The end of the affair came in July 1916. And uh, eventually we understand that Antebi disengaged himself from this uh, business, apparently fell out of favor with Jamal Pasha. In fact, eventually Antibi was uh, uh, exiled into uh, you know, Syria. Um, there's also the fact that other people, like Licktime, were able to win the argument, and essentially saying that while the offer was really good, you know, perhaps it would have been better to wait and again redeem the war instead of purchasing it. And the fact that Antebi you know, fell out of favor basically gave the possibility to take this road instead of uh, pursuing the purchase of the wall. For which, remember, the money was collected and was made available. So it was really a possibility for the Zionists to purchase the wall and to essentially change history in that sense.
Anyway, whatever the reason, it was obvious that Antebi no longer wanted to keep the affair active, and uh, others tried to convince him or even to take his position, but eventually the, the old business fell through. What is interesting is that in some letters, uh, particularly towards the end of, of this affair, we find out that uh, some Zionists were trying to frame all of this within the question of urban planning. A matter of general city beautification plans. So a local Zionist leader, Thorne, suggested that, you know, uh, in the end we can still move on and perhaps reframe the old business into a question of urban planning. Besides, you know, Jamal Pasha was heavily involved in urban planning, not just of Jerusalem, but Jaffa, of Damascus and others. And all of these ideas were reported by many sources back, back then. So there was another way to reach the same goal. But that too fell through. Eventually, by the summer 1916, Jamal Pasha decided to liquidate uh, the many Zionist leaders which were exp expelled from Palestine. And, and it was quite obvious by then that the Western Wall affair was truly over. Uh, but now I would say that was also conveniently forgotten. Because this event, despite the availability of documents, was never reported. And this is something I will discuss later because I think this is very important. Some sources mention that uh, the documents are available, but no one, particularly Zionist historiography, picked up this particular event. And I think that is due to the fact that the wall was going to be purchased and was not going to be redeemed. And as we know, those that are interested in Zionist history know that the word geulé, redemption, is crucial to the Zionist ideology, redeeming, not purchasing. So changing the view over the Jews and, you know, sort of the Jewish identity, which, you know, uh, as defined by, by anti-Semitic uh, tropes, is always connected to this idea of financial control and money and so forth. So... Let me move to the question of secrecy and obviously, you know, the failure of, uh, uh, of this business. One of the most striking features of these documents is the level of secrecy that was kept throughout the last part of 1915 and in the first months of 1916 between all of the various parties involved. Secrecy, however, I want to say, did not end with the war as the leaders of the Zionist movement did not discuss the offer openly. No one out after the war said hey we had this opportunity and but we you know nothing happened none of them none of them the request for secrecy emerged throughout the correspondence as early as december 1915 particularly in the letter that were directed to brandeis basically the letter uh, to him reminded him to keep all of this secret yes get the money but don't talk about this to anybody it is possible to assume that the Zionist leadership was afraid that the affair might have collapsed if it had been made public. And it's, you know, it's, it's a good concern. They knew that Jamal Pasha didn't really like the Zionists, and he didn't want to be, you know, sort of put in the middle of this international affair. So, you know, this is a very good reason why the, the agreement was, uh, was kept secret. But, as I said earlier, there are also other questions, and one that eventually became public about, uh, you know, the potential Arab reaction, potential local Palestinian reaction. 
And this is one that certainly, uh, you know, was at the heart of, uh, of Albert Antebi. Albert Antebi was essentially an Arab Jew. Uh, you know, he was connected to the local Palestinian community and he knew, he knew that his, you know, fellow Muslims and Christians, Arab Christians and, and Muslims, would have certainly reacted to the purchase of the war by, by the Jews, by the Zionists. Uh, so it makes sense to believe that, you know, all of this remained a secret in order to avoid, first, the failure of the agreement, and secondly, you know, the sort of a rising tension between communities that would have, could have certainly had an impact on Zionist projects in the region. So secrecy was certainly justified throughout the war, considering the sensitivity of the matter and the fact that Zionists belonged to both sides of the warring parties. A large number of Zionists were German as well as Russian. So they were enemies, you know, with each other, de facto. More complicated, too, however, is to explain the lack of any reference to this episode in subsequent publications, subsequent histories, written by those who were directly involved. Many of these individuals left diaries and memoirs, but they never talk about this event. So it is arguable that after the events unfolded, one or more of the individuals involved would have opened up about the case, but they didn't, none of them. None of them recorded anything about the dealings, the letters. And while I researched archives, personal papers, letters, diaries, and memoirs, other books, in fact, I realized that the pact of secrecy, which was sworn by all, was strong and permanent. Now, the only exception was Morgantown, but he was not really part of the deal. He recorded the event, as I said at the very beginning of, of, of the podcast, in his diary. But the fact that he doesn't really mention many details and the fact that he probably never believed his diary would have been published, you know, doesn't make this source extremely relevant. He's mentioning that he heard that Jamal Pasha made an offer you know, to the Jews to purchase the war, and that was the extent of it. And, and I think there are two main reasons here about the secrecy. The first, again, the fact that in the aftermath of the Balfour Declaration and the end of the war and the rise of Arab, the Arab-Zionist tension, the publicity about the offer made by Jamal Pasha may have had a negative repercussion, and we may say repercussions in plural, on the movement that was still split over the significance of the Western war. It's possible. It's possible that, you know, talking and making this case public might have triggered more and more discussions and maybe accusations. Why you didn't buy it by many? And others could have said, yeah, you're right. You shouldn't have you know, purchased that because we will redeem it in another way. And secondly, following the 1929 riots, publicity was once again not a good option. The Western War had by that time became, become a generally accepted Jewish Zionist symbol. And the people originally involved would have faced awkward questions again about their failure. So all individuals involved had put themselves in a no-win situation, making secrecy the most favorable outcome for everyone. But secrecy alone cannot be held accountable for the shortage or even complete absence of discussions by historians of the Western War. Some argue that this abortive and obscure incident should not receive historians' attention. 
but I would argue the opposite, that its omission would be detrimental to historical research. We should be led by a deep knowledge of archival materials. We should talk about even things that didn't happen then later, that didn't you know, eventually reach an end. The decades-long availability of these records at the Central Zionist archives leads me to argue that historiography on this historical incident has been affected in two ways. First, as a direct consequence of the choice to neglect this event, and secondly, as an indirect consequence of the reliance by those historians on a self-perpetuating historiography. So essentially, you know, you don't talk about it, you know about it, but you keep ignoring it. To clarify, the erasure of Ottoman Palestine is not just an issue only affecting Zionist historiography. In fact, remember Salim Tamari, the first guest of the podcast? He said that an anti-Ottoman rewriting of history took place simultaneously and in the same abrupt manner, both on the Turkish side and on the Arab side. A review of large number of works discussing the history of Zionism and of the history of the Palestine during the war reveals that there's a somewhat static narrative where the four years of uh, Jamal Pasha's military dictatorship have come to epitomize the four centuries of Ottoman rule. And certainly this is the old sort of school, uh, you know, Zionist historiography, but also Western and to an extent even Palestinian historiography. That has changed in the last 20 years. And certainly in the last decade, even more so. And a good number of historians, still a few in my view, but, you know, a good number of them, and of us, I would say, have tried to rectify this superficial view, adding an increasing level of complexity and nuance. And I want to focus here briefly on a few, you know, there are certain historiographical trends that should be taken into account. And as I said, one of them is certainly the sort of a, uh, traditional Zionist historiography, that despite having access to these documents, decided not to include them. You know, there's a very famous work, the only one I want to mention and bother you with, with uh, which is the book of Isaiah Friedman, Germany, Turkey, and Zionism, 1897-1918. But there's no mention whatsoever of this affair, despite, you know, the tons of material quoted from the central Zionist archives. Quite interestingly, the same file is actually in the bibliography, but is never mentioned. So, Again, it speaks volume. It was available, but it was decided not to talk about it. But let me now turn the attention to the failure of a Western Wall affair as we reach the conclusion of this story. By the end of July 1916, as I said, Tone, a local Zionist leader, had realized that the situation was rapidly changing. And as Antebi was becoming distant from the proposal, Jamal Pasha too was doing the same. Remember, the money was available though. So Antebi grew suspicious of the Ottoman commander following the execution of a large number of Arab nationalists in Palestine and Lebanon. And Jamal had grown furious by mid-July 1916 at claims published by international press that the Ottoman Empire agreed to the sale of Palestine to the Jews, a rumor that was apparently spread by the former American ambassador, again, Harry Morgenthau. We, we don't know how this business started, but you know, it's the rumor circulated. Now, why Jamal Pasha rejected the claim, he took advantage of this event to stop Zionist activities and essentially ending any chance for the affair to be concluded. At this point, it can be argued that the affair failed to, 
due to the unfolding events created by the war and its effects. Nevertheless, this is only one partial explanation that does not take into account the internal debates within the Zionist movement, and this is to me is the most important one. I would argue that the failure to purchase the Western Wall and the area occupied by the Maghrebi Quarter, which are two distinct locations anyway, even though you know, in proximity to each other, may be mostly attributed to the different value attached to the war itself by Zionist leaders than the lack of opportunity. As we mentioned at the very beginning, the Western Wall had been a site for Jewish prayers for centuries. But as uh, the scholar, the uh, Israeli scholar Aryeh Saposnik argues, the wall at best occupied a marginal place in the Zionist national liturgy at the beginning of the, 19th, uh, at the 20th century. Early Zionist attempt to purchase the wall and the adjacent courtyard suggests that it bore some consideration, but more as a place to redeem than to transform into a symbol. And Saposnik has noted all of these different nuances in Zionist perception and understanding of the symbolic value of the Western War. For instance, the editor of the Hebrew language Zionist newspaper, Ashkafa Itamar Benavi, perceived the war not as a symbol of destruction, but as a future symbol, bear in mind this, for a reclaimed military heroism linked to the historical Asmoan and Maccabean resistant movements. Bezalel, the chief artisan of the First Temple and the Ark of the Covenant, was nevertheless still favored as a symbol of the imminent Jewish rebirth, not the war. The analysis presented by Saposnik, Rika, Hillel Cohen, and others suggest in different ways that the war, the Balfour Declaration, the establishment of the British Mandate, and the emergence of a structured conflict between Zionists and Arab parties acted as a catalyst for the demarginalization of the Western War. And now, by 1929, the war had become a contested side, and even part of an emerging cycle of ritualized violence that incorporated those sacred places into the nationalist struggles on both sides. In this context, now we can understand why 1916, League Time, and other Zionist leaders were not necessarily sold on the wisdom of purchasing the war, which was often described by the same people as a filthy place that poorly represents the emerging idea of a modern Hebrew-Jewish man, the Alutz, the pioneer. When calls to purchase or gain control of the war were being made on a daily basis by summer 1929, I feel like the missed opportunity to buy it must have haunted those who let this chance go. This, however, was no time for regrets. And with the events then unfolding on the ground, this affair simply slipped into the neglected boxes of a Zionist and Ottoman history. But let me say a couple of things more here. The director of the Anglo-Palestine Company, Eliezer Ufian, an associate of Tone in Palestine during the war, wrote to Frederick Kitsch, head of the Zionist Commission for the Jerusalem region and former British officer, late in 1928. In his words, he said, the importance to the Zionist organization and for its present executive of scoring a success in this matter, the purchase of the Western Wall, is quite apart from the historic importance of the thing itself. Imagine what it will mean to have been the redeemer of the wall. Now, ironically, Ufian was in Palestine during the war and well aware of the wall affair, 
But those days were over and gone, and whoever was going to take the wall would be remembered as a redeemer, a quasi-biblical figure rather than just a skilled negotiator dealing with an easily bribable Ottoman official. Think about the difference. So we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that counterfactual history may be an impractical exercise. But I think that would be legitimate to imagine what would have happened if the wall had been sold to the Zionists during the war. Would the conflict between the two competing nationalist projects have happened differently? Would the creation of a plaza and the demolition of a Maghrebi quarter under the Ottomans have had a different impact upon those who were expelled in 1967? Would the changes that have occurred in the understanding of the shared holy place have occurred, and how? Obviously, there are tons of other questions that can be undoubtedly asked, but we should not wander too far from the larger context to which the world belongs as a piece. Zionists and Palestinians have been fighting over land and identity and other questions, a conflict over dueling national narratives of which religion has and does play only a part. The acquisition of the wall should thus be seen as a part of that conflict and not as a causal element. What certainly could be changed, however, is the historical narrative of Palestine in the early 20th century. Now, I'm not here eulogizing uh, post-Zionist historians. I do share many of those ideas with their limits and weaknesses, but they have indeed boldly perused previously unexplored archives and accumulated new evidence about the past. Yet, corners still need to be explored, discovered, employed, and more importantly, spread successfully beyond the realm of academia. The story of Jamal Pasha's offer does not fit the canon of a tra traditional Zionist historiography, and it also poses some potential issues for those working on Palestinian and Ottoman history. To ignore it and avoid a debate would not would be not just a counterproductive, but it might negatively affect attempts to reconcile with the past. The events of 1967 are rooted in the past. And as, again, Thorne wrote in his words, in normal times, one can definitely not clear them easily, the, the houses. However, right now, during the general demolition at higher command, without meticulous procedures, this is relatively easy in one wash up. The archives are open and the documentation is available. So now what is missing is historians, people willing to ask the right kind of questions. With this, I end the story of 1916, which I call the deal of a century, with a question mark, because obviously that didn't turn out to be the deal of a century and the attempted sale of a Western wall by Jamal Pasha. You can find the article available, published by Middle Eastern Studies, with plenty of more details and all of the references to the material and individuals that I mentioned. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Jerusalem Unplugged. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, Please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 